while we're in darkness, if, you know, melatonin is referred to as that uh, vampire hormone or hormone of darkness. Now, it's much more complicated than that, but it is facilitated by darkness. And so in order to have a sufficient rise up of melatonin, we want to be sitting in darkness for an extended period of time leading up to bedtime. You're listening to the High Performance Health Podcast, helping you optimize your health, performance and longevity. My name is Angela Foster and I'm a former corporate lawyer turned high performance health coach. Each week I bring you cutting edge biohacks, inspiring insights and high performance habits to unlock optimal health, performance and longevity. So excited that you've chosen to join me today. Now let's dive in. Hi friends, I am super excited to introduce you to my friend and fellow podcaster, Molly Eastman. She is the creator of Sleep is a Skill. She's also the host of the Sleep is a Skill podcast. If you are having any problems sleeping, then you are going to gain valuable insights in this week's episode. We talk about everything in terms of how to optimize your sleep, which trackers are the best, how accurate they are, and a whole lot more. She is literally a wealth of knowledge about all things sleep. You should definitely check out Molly's podcast, Sleep is a skill. I've also had the pleasure of going on that show and she's super fun as you'll find out in this week's episode. You can also join Molly and me and a host of other experts at the Dragonfly Live Women's Edition Conference in Colorado this November. I will put a link and a discount code uh, in the top link in the show notes um, for this episode. But for now, let me introduce you to Molly Eastman. So Molly, it is so great to finally be here with you today. I know it's taken us a while to get this in the calendar, but I'm super excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I know we we were chatting before we hit record and I'm sure our struggle will be to hit on all of our topics because I could just talk to you for a long period of time. I'm very excited for this conversation. Me too, me too. So let's kick off with how did you, just so you can kind of introduce how did you get into I know we were just talking offline that you work a lot with poker players but how did you get into sleep yeah great question um and I hope that it serves for the listener um to underscore that no matter where you might be at with your sleep that there's absolutely I'm a stand that there's always things that we can do across the board to up level our experience of our sleep and that was certainly my uh part of my story so how i think of my life at this point is a really three part series i think of it as uh before i went through truly a real sleep breakdown and it was probably one of the lowest periods of my life um it was just a culmination of all the things that weren't working in my life uh, at the time i was a serial entrepreneur in manhattan burning the candle at both ends uh and went through this period of insomnia that absolutely changed the course of my life but before that what it looked like was a lot of labels and narratives around my sleep. So I would say things like, I'm a short sleeper, I'm a night owl, I'm a bad sleeper, it's in my genes, I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know, kind of all of these ways of relating to my sleep is something that's fixed, and that it's just really about kind of surviving this problem. Um, And so I actually didn't, you know, think that there was much to look at there, because of course, it was just a given that that's how life had always been for me. And it was probably how it always would be. And that was, you know, kind of the the outlook. Um, And it wasn't until that period of insomnia that was really my rock bottom in my life uh, that, you know, no pun intended, sort of acted as this wake up call. And I shared with you a little offline, um, you know, I've had really close family members in my life that have gone through um, 
a kind of a pathway where they found themselves really dependent on pharmaceuticals uh, and particularly for sleep, uh, especially. So when this happened to me, it was very a scary moment and thinking, oh no, is this now my future? Is this something that now I'm going to be dependent on a pill to fall asleep for the rest of my life? Um, and so that was very, very scary to me, having seen the struggles that, you know, other family members had gone through. It really lit a fire under me to get up under what wasn't working in this area. Um, so I really, I tend to have a bit of an obsessive nature. It's probably partly why I was having such a problem with my sleep, you know, that kind of, um, type of mind. And so went down the rabbit hole on this topic. So on the, on the bright side of that was that it completely changed the course of my life. What I discovered around this area of sleep and what really fascinated me and probably will likely speak on some of this, um, was this world of chronobiology, the science of time and how time affects our biology and discovering that how I'd been managing my life really, uh, was not setting me up powerfully to get great sleep and along the ways had missed a lot of signs that how I was managing life um, was not working. You know, I'd had shingles in my 20s. I had uh, the beginnings of an ulcer, a lot of, you know, rising anxiety, all these things that were pointing to that something wasn't working. Um, but with that, not correlating it with the sleep component. So as I go down the rabbit hole, completely end up transforming um, how I'm relating to my life, how I'm managing my life. And out of that process, begin to over time restore the workability in my sleep, but not only get it just to how I'd been before, but actually get it to, you know, quantifiably optimal states where I can actually point to the numbers of being on the right side of the bell curve of, you know, the my sleep performance and First of all, I never thought that was possible for myself. So when it started getting to that, it was something where my whole life was shifting. I couldn't stop talking about it. Just, you know, just naturally was sharing it galore. Uh, and then so small groups kind of start, um, you know, kind of forming around this topic, just kind of organically. Uh, and then from that place, then sleep is a skill kind of was born from this uh, realization that this is an area that I truly believe that we're missing the mark and not speaking about in a way um, and leveraging some of the latest science that really is, I believe, completely groundbreaking for how we're managing our days and our nights. Uh, and so on the other side of that, then what started growing was sleep as a skill. So we have online courses. We have um, a weekly newsletter we've been sending for over uh, almost five years. Um, uh, top sleep podcast for the number two sleep podcast. So we've got lots of experts coming on to share, you know, uh, advice. And so for free, people can start just, you know, really up-leveling this area of their life. We're now in hotels. So we're in um, luxury hotels like Casa Cipriani's and um, and others. And so we're starting to get this message out. And to your point, you mentioned poker. So we work with a lot of um, high stakes poker players in particular. Uh, so I share all that because no matter where the listener might be at with their sleep, whether it's, you know, feels resigned, it's just always going to be like this, or, you know, maybe not even thinking about it that much and just kind of open. I promise that there are things that we can do to help support just the curiosity and intrigue and standing that sleep really is a skill. Awesome. I love that. Let's dive in. So, because oh, yeah. it is a skill. I love the way you've called it that. Okay. So, um, Let's start with how much sleep should we be getting? Because I think that this is something that 
plagues a lot of people. They worry about it. They hear about risks of dementia and things like that. If you're not getting enough sleep, we know it affects performance. Um, you know, I think that um, Matthew Walker said it's probably the greatest performance enhancing effect that is actually legal and it's free uh, in terms of, of in terms of what's legal. So it's pretty amazing what sleep can do. But there seem to be some variances between how much people feel they need, how refreshed they are. And certainly when I've looked at genetic testing, for example, people seem to be categorized as someone who needs a bit longer, people who are in that classic kind of seven to nine hours, and then even some people who seemingly need less. And I've seen there was a, a massive study, I think, where they took, they had to uh, wait for really for the technology to catch up to process the data. And it seemed like from these thousands and thousands of people, six and a half hours seemed the optimum. But then it was like, well, is it actually these people are living much healthier lives, and therefore they didn't need as much sleep. So I'm curious, yeah. Where you come out on that? Like how much sleep do we really need? Oh, fantastic question. I think that's where um, it's helpful for people to get rooted in because sleep duration is a big question. It's often where we begin um, as we're looking to improve our sleep is getting a sense of, well, how much sleep are we getting? And is that enough? Uh, so uh, a very large study did um, come out fairly recently that put it in terms of kind of a U-shape curve um, where it still calls and harkens to this conversation of seven to nine hours. Um, but within that seven to nine hours, that's where that U-shape piece comes into play. We're finding that as we start to deviate too, too greatly from either sides of kind of those goalposts of the U um, piece, then we can see some deleterious effects as we move uh, very far away. And that also applies to too much sleep, to kind of hypersomnia, to getting uh, large quantities of sleep. But, you know, we want to question the why, why is that happening? Um, so, so when we start deviating too, too far from there, then we do see problems emerge. Now, to your point, there actually did seem to be um, some kind of coupling near that seven hour kind of line of that U. Um, and this is where it gets so nuanced because I hope that for the listener, this is for these recommendations are for a healthy adult. Now, um, lots of dynamic nature to sleep quantity need throughout the course of our lives, both by age, by gender, um, but then of course by lifestyle and uh, food intake and all these elements of um, kind of what that sleep hunger, if you will, almost the same way we think of hunger for food, our sleep hunger and the hunger for getting sufficient sleep based on how we're managing our lives. And with the idea that as we age, there's likely to be some changes in total sleep duration and need as well. Um, I, something that I think adds some layers to this so that we don't get too lost in the sleep duration component. And I hope for most people, one of the things I see um, cause we do have one of the, I was sharing with you, one of the largest databases of or ring users from a sleep optimization perspective outside of research. Um, so we see a lot of different ways that people are managing their sleep. And one of the things I see is, uh, there's tends to be for most people, a lot of variability in the timing of their sleep. So even if you're sitting here thinking, okay, well around, I probably am averaging whatever, you know, a little over seven hours or something, if, for example. Um, but then we look at these numbers and often there's so much variability in the timing of that sleep and the regularity of that sleep and a number of things that point to the quality of that particular sleep. So I would have people um, take on that until we actually bring in some of the foundational components of um, how they're managing their sleep, that sleep duration piece might be more um, 
sec, you know, uh, down the rung on the things that we would be looking at, because once we bring these um, kind of pieces into play, then we can start to ensure that the quality of that sleep uh, really matches our endeavors, if, if that makes sense. So what I would say about all this is something that came out recently was around sleep age, which is really kind of fascinating. It's this idea of uh, leveraging AI to look at people's sleep performance uh, and then assign an age to the readouts of this. And I think this gets a, a bit more nuanced just beyond the sleep duration piece um, so that people don't get lost in the weeds of that instead have some more context. So sleep age, one of the things that we would see is based on that performance of an individual using AI to kind of um, assign an age. So if we, if we got Angela Foster's sleep readout, then we could say, all right, so she's sleeping like a 28 year old. And what would be the kind of, um, components of someone that's sleeping like that versus sadly many people it's that they get their readout and they're actually sleeping like an older person than their, you know, kind of, uh, chronological age. So what brings into that into play, some of the biggest features of that seem to actually be sleep fragmentation being a really important component of this. Uh, uh, so even if what, sorry? fragmentation, so meaning just like oh, as in waking up, as in waking up. Oh, and so, um, this is where I hope that it inspires some curiosity around getting in depth on the quality of our sleep, because some people, and I've seen this a lot too, people will say, oh, well, no matter what I manage life so that I always get my fill in the blank eight hours or what have you. But then we look at their sleep and in order to get those eight hours, they're having all kinds of odd behavior or lots of, you know, wake ups and then they're sleeping in later to account for these things. And that's where the duration is insufficient um, because that fragmentation we know is such a hallmark of kind of older sleep, if you will, or an older person's way of managing their sleep. And, and I also believe that just since, uh, since it's normal and kind of on the bell curve, doesn't mean that it's optimal. And I think that there's ways that we can disrupt how it's always been too, and start to change what we see for, and think of for older sleep. Um, so it's some other ways to think about this topic. Yeah, really interesting. So I want to kind of circle back onto that fragmentation in a moment. I guess when we're track when we're tracking it, the biggest question for me then is how much can we trust the device that we're looking at? Because my understanding is with Aura, they were around 60% now. I think are they something like 85%? And everybody freaked out when the, yes. the beta came in and they were like, what the hell happened to my deep sleep? Yeah. <laughs> Where did it go? <laughs> it was actually, it was always like that, but how much can we trust this for the metrics of data? Because I know they're very good at like HRV, resting heart rate, body temperature, and also showing you the duration. Although often I've had people say I'm watching TV and it thinks I'm asleep. So yeah. maybe they're very still. <laughs> but what about when we look at REM sleep and deep sleep and light sleep? Can Aura I tell you with any accuracy? I am so glad you asked this question because um, for years I've been trying to sound the alarms and I would see actually, you know, like, big thought leaders um, in the space and doctors and people that are showing their aura stats or not just and it's not to make it exclusive to aura. So all of these hand and wrist based trackers, no matter what you might be using. So say if you've got your Garmin, you've got your bio strap, you've got your, you know, whoop band, you've got whatever it might be. Um, we, we do know one thing for certain as of right now, and now this might change, this is in 2023, uh, things could shift down the road. Um, but right now, 
the sleep stage classifications for consumer grade wearables um, are the least accurate metrics on these wearables that you can look at. Uh, and unfortunately, it's the, the area that I almost always see people often leading with. So they'll send me, you know, messages and say, oh, no, my deep sleep is 30 minutes help. What do I do? And, uh, kind of, and very concerned in making real decisions and choices and kind of setting up their lives in accordance to this data. And my concern there is how we want to think about this hand and wrist-based trackers are making their best guess as it realized, as it relates to, uh, sleep stages. And when we say sleep stages, what you, what you pointed to deep sleep, REM, light sleep, and kind of the breakup of this, um, really right now, the only way we have to truly understand what sleep stage we're in is a brain-based wearable. So using more EEG type, uh, data, um, and then correlating that with other complex data around how, um, you know, you pointed to things like motion, um, and looking at things like heart rate and HRV and all those things can help us understand what sleep stage we're in, but without the brain based information, then it's really their best guess. So with, for instance, or ring, um, proclaims and has uh, certain studies behind it is putting it at, uh, one of the higher, um, kind of degrees of accuracy based out of different wearables, um, with their new update. And even with their new update though, it still puts them, um, right around the 80% mark for accuracy in that area. So what I would say for people with that is that, you can look at the overall trends and kind of pan out. I certainly wouldn't make a lot of decisions on a daily basis based around what, you know, is coming back to you for your day readouts of your breakdown of your sleep. Um, but just the panning out and seeing if you're wildly kind of, uh, deviating from your established baseline. And I will say it takes some time for many of these wearables to kind of learn about you. If you've just purchased one of these it takes a little bit of time, um, but you get your baseline. And if you're really deviating, then to kind of take note, but to not lose your mind. Now, what I would say is those other metrics you pointed to very wise to put a little bit more stake into those since they tend to be in around the 90 to above percent accuracy, meaning for things like, um, the heart rate, respiratory rate, body temperature, uh, HRV, blood oxygen, as well as uh, just simply, are you asleep or are you awake? Although you have pointed to times when, you know, doesn't always get that necessarily right. Um, but it tends to be pretty high marking for its ability to tell those things. And we can learn a ton about our habits and behaviors um, as it relates to those readouts. And what about, um, that's really helpful. Thank you. What about like when we look at Whoop, for example, Whoop will tell me it's normal. You're having however many wake-ups an hour or it never, ever shows me a wake-up, right? So I seem to be like, go to sleep, wake up. And that's certainly how I feel. Yes. Uh, whereas I do see clients that in, in this fragmentation pattern that you're, that you're speaking of there, uh, where they are getting wake-ups on Aura and they're quite visible because they show like quite, you know, white blocks that are significant, What's yeah. the difference there? What is Weep showing? And and is that like how accurate is that data? Because it seems very different than Aura. 
Oh, this is where we can really go down the rabbit hole. So, and I've got a lot of clients that almost, um, you know, identify like biohacker identification um, process. So they've got lots of different wearables and some of them to the point that I would actually have clients that had entire spreadsheets where they were cross-referencing all of their different wearables, sometimes four or five wearables at once in a night. Um, so I don't advise to do that. And my big advice would be to not um, cross compare against wearables since they have such different um, algorithms. Now it's frustrating because it's like, well, then which one do you believe? Uh, you know, how do we make kind of meaning over these things? But what I would say is within each wearable, um, you're logging and noticing those major deviations. Now I will say with, uh, for all of us, there are wakeups that we are having, uh, throughout the course of the night that we just aren't aware of. Um, and so we are, you know, kind of just moving around and, you know, changing positions. Uh, and there's these kind of micro wakeups that we're just not mentally logging into our memory. Um, and that's perfectly normal. We see that. Uh, and yet, what I will say is for things like Oura Ring, when I do see lots of those, you know, kind of um, ticks of awake uh, time that's actually uh, truly being logged by Aura um, and, and registering as wake-ups, then those are often signs for us that first off, we want to always discount any sort of, you know, kind of sleep pathologies that might be at play. Um, particularly very notably respiratory uh, issues that might be coming up that are just so often go um, undiagnosed or unrealized. Uh, and knowing that there's over 80 different sleep uh, disorders that exist. So we're making sure that we're not missing some of those um, that can often occur throughout the course of the night for people. So, you know, making sure that we do get into the right hands if we do suspect that we have some sort of disorder that's at play that could be at the source of some of those wake-ups. And most commonly is some form of sleep apnea, mild, moderate, or severe. Um, and even outside of sleep apnea, there's something kind of in between there, upper airway resistance syndrome, um, that can also be another uh, kind of disruptor of how we're breathing throughout the course of the night and is a super common reason for those wake-ups, even if the person doesn't totally remember those wake-ups. And we see that a lot too, especially if there is long-time, um, you know, maybe apneas or disordered breathing, because unfortunately, when that's the case, many people are so sleep-deprived. They're the ones that people say, oh, I don't have a problem sleeping. I fall asleep just like the minute my head hits the pillow, I'm asleep which is often a red flag for us that something uh, might be actually problematic in their sleep that's making them that sleep deprived that they're falling asleep with that much um, that quickly. Uh, so all those things to say that if we are seeing a lot of those ticks of wake ups throughout the course of the night, making sure that we uh, take the steps to eliminate any possibility for sleep apnea, especially too, I will say, um, in the sleep community, a lot of there's alarms being sounded for women in particular over the age of 40 um, as being kind of a missed group for diagnosing of this problem because often they don't exhibit in the same way that we might have historically thought of sleep apnea. So it's not necessarily, um, you know, overweight, really loud snoring, uh, you know, uh, neck circumference, all of those things that we used to think and, and still apply, of course, for sleep apnea, but uh, it's not exclusive. And for women, we see that often, even if you didn't have sleep apnea before, maybe you tested 
started when at a certain age. And then, um, post 40, we can see with hormonal shifts and change in, um, you know, even say for instance, how, uh, the, the muscles in your tongue, uh, that alone can shift how much blockage is happening of your airway. And then you might be dealing with sleep apnea, which is wildly going to augment problems with hormonal function and other things that we're looking to um, get to the source of for our overall health. If you listen to this podcast, you're probably like me. You want to have high energy every day to achieve everything you want to, while also protecting your health span and longevity. And for the last six months, I've been taking a supplement called NAD Regen by Biostat Labs. Not only does it contain a powerful combination of niacinamide, NAD3 and resveratrol, which support NAD, also known as the molecule of youth, it has spermidine in it. And spermidine helps inhibit many of the hallmarks of aging. It also supports better cognition, improved memory, heart health and circadian rhythm. And I'll tell you what I've noticed since taking NAD Regen is consistently high energy, which is a huge bonus given that I'm always juggling the demands of running both my businesses alongside my kids and all of their activities and my daily workouts. And I've also noticed a lot of new hair growth, which is common with spermidine. The beauty benefits are, of course, always welcome. So after experiencing all these benefits, I wanted you to experience similar ones. And so I've arranged a very special offer with our sponsors, Biostat Labs. When you buy two bottles of NAD Regen, Biostat Labs are giving listeners of this show a free bottle of GD-Aid, their glucose supplement that contains the very best ingredients for all-round metabolic health. I take NAD Regen in the morning in a fastest state before my workout to amplify the autophagy boosting effects and then GDA just before my most carb heavy meal of the day to blunt the glucose spike. To get your free bottle of GDAID and all the energy and health promoting benefits of NAD Regen, head over to biostacklabs.com forward slash Angela. And when you purchase two bottles of NAD Regen, Biostat Labs will send you a free bottle of GDAID. That's biostatlabs.com forward slash Angela to get your exclusive offer. I'm inviting you to join our newly opened High Performance Health Facebook group, where we're all about unlocking our utmost potential. If you are a fellow biohacker, a coach, or a woman with an entrepreneurial spirit looking for peak performance, then our community of ambitious women is just for you. But it's not just about connecting with like-minded women. It's about empowering each other. We have weekly live training, Q&As, and a bunch of other exclusive content that I don't get the chance to share anywhere else. New biohacks I'm exploring, plus extra nuggets of wisdom from my podcast guests and so much more. It's free to join. Simply click the top link in the show notes or go to angelafoster.me forward slash HP. That's angelafoster.me forward slash HPH or click the top link in the show notes. And once inside, send me a message so we can connect personally. I can't wait to see you there. Okay, so if you're seeing those wake-ups on Aura, they probably genuinely are wake-ups and you should get those checked before you do anything that we're about to talk about, right? Yes, I would say, especially to your point, because you nailed it with, um, and I see that a lot when I see a lot, like it's just a whole sprinkling of those little wake up signs. Um, we absolutely want to make sure that 
uh, we want to eliminate the sleep disorder piece and make sure that we're not overlooking that because anything else we're going to do is sort of just like, you know, peripheral if we're not dealing with that because it's so egregious and so disruptive to our overall health and well-being and really a true life or death situation because we know that over time, this wildly upticks our rates of cardiovascular health, um, neurodegenerative diseases, emotional regulation. Uh, you know, so there's so many, both on the short term and certainly the long term, that can get disrupted. And this also applies to, I have this a lot too. I, have, I work with couples at points and just sort of this casual, funny, uh, light air around, oh, well, you know, my wife is a snorer and, you know, this and the other. Um, and, if we are dealing with even just light snoring throughout the course of the night, we want to get that tested um, because that even in and of itself can have some sort of range of disordered breathing. So we want to deal with that. And there's really cool things that we can do now to address things like that. So even um, snoring, for example, there's daytime treatments now, like for example, Excite OSA is a daytime treatment where it's pretty much like a glorified TENS unit that you put onto your tongue around 20 minutes throughout each day. Day, um, and there's kind of a sequence of how you're administering that. And that can address just even it's, it's FDA cleared in the United States for snoring um, and then also for mild sleep apnea and then in uh, trials for moderate to severe sleep apnea. So hopefully that will be af applicable to those groups as well. So I'm saying that because no matter what we might be dealing with. And even if it's just falling in the domain of, oh, innocent snoring, that's a big, big deal and can be really disruptive and can be part of the reason for some of those wake-ups that you're seeing. Awesome. That's really good to know and that there's, there's stuff coming out to help people. Yes. Um, what can we do then? So it sounds like Whoop seems to track normal wake-ups. So maybe unless you're seeing lows and lows and lows, right, or for extended periods, but aura, if you're seeing those white blocks in the night, actually, really definitely, you should be paying attention to those because it doesn't pick up these tiny little movement ones. So they might show you moving. It seems to be able to distinguish is what I was picking up there. So we exactly. need to be serious. Great. Yes, uh, so, especially on aura, as opposed to, to your point, um, whoop, we'll see a lot more of those little uh, brief ticks. Um, mm. and, and so it seems to land a little bit differently to how aura is picking those up. Uh, so just manage that accordingly. And so we want to get some of those, uh, certainly those number of ticks down. Uh, but especially if you see it on something like aura, just where the way they're plucking out their information, that's a bit more meaningful. Is there a normal amount? Is there an amount that's considered like, okay, I know obviously some people will get up to use the bathroom, but is there a kind of acceptable range that if it happens once or twice, it's okay? Or where would you come yes, out on that? Really important call out. Cause I also don't want to be leaving people with any sort of neuroses or fears. Cause we see that being one of the biggest drivers of, uh, kind of insomnia or difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep or early awakenings is this perception of sleep is something's wrong and kind of perfectionistic tendencies is just often, uh, you know, kind of airs itself as it relates to how we're thinking about our sleep. So that's a really important call out. Um, so it is normal to have a wake up or two throughout the course of the night. It starts to be problematic when we start to think about how long we are now uh, awake. And if we're having long stretches of the time, you know, over 10 to 15 minutes now where you're actually fully awake, we want to 
understand the why that that's happening. Um, and I will say that across the board for many people that I work with that as we start addressing all the things that, uh, you know, the big heavy hitters that we can bring in to help support sleep, often even those numbers go down. But don't, you know, uh, lose your mind if you're having a wake up and going to the bathroom throughout the course of the night. That's not necessarily um, a concerning call out. Okay, great. Thank you for, for clearing that up. Yeah. So that being said, then, when we're looking at optimizing sleep, and yes. as someone who, for example, is seeing these micro wake ups, what are the key things that they can do or anyone, in fact, can do to improve the quality of their sleep? Sure. So first off, one of the most common reasons where why people come our way is for wake ups. Um, so you're not alone for anyone if they are listening and dealing with some sort of wake ups or number of wake ups. Uh, and if if we're starting there, knowing that herein lies the um, the skill set piece of sleep, because there are it could land as oh my god, there's so many reasons for wake ups. But I hope that it lands as oh my god, there's so many reasons for wake ups in a in a positive way. Uh, because it actually puts it less in the domain of, oh, I'm just someone that wakes up a lot throughout the night. I'm a light sleeper. I'm a this, I'm a that. And instead that there's a number of things that we can address to understand the why. So first off, what are just some of the most common reasons for wake-ups? Um, we can start with probably the least sexy one, but one of the most impactful places for people to begin, which is sleep regularity. And almost never uh, do people want to hear about this one because it really does require a total lifestyle shift um, because it requires us really mindfully, and we have people do this in our programs, of um, just sitting with their calendar and what they're learning about the things that impact our circadian rhythm. So we talk about strengthening circadian rhythm. Um, and so how they can design their days from the moment they wake up and what time is that wake up such that they can uh, commit to that seven days a week and what would inspire them. And that includes, you know, the weekends or wherever their normal deviations might uh, arise. Um, and I also find a blind spot for a lot of people where they say, oh, that's not really me. I don't really, uh, you know, have too many deviations from my wakeups. But then I look at their stats and almost always we see this roller coaster um, at some point throughout the course of their week where they just fall off course, um, and not realizing how much that alone can disrupt their sleep quality. Cause it kind of, um, part of the impact of this is say, if you do sleep in an hour and a half, two hours in some place throughout the course of your night or throughout the course of your week, um, then it can result in what's kind of referred to as social jet lag, where you didn't get on a plane, but you are experiencing uh, jet lag-like symptoms because of that deviation and the regularity of your wake-ups. Um, so just- How consistent should they be then? Like, let's say, for example, yes. you're an early riser, you get up somewhere between, I don't know, let's say someone wakes up at six every day in the week. How much latitude do they have to- wake up a bit later at the weekend? Great question. So our recommendations are to have it largely seven days a week, the same wake up time plus or minus 30 minutes. So that's kind of oh, your wow. swing. It's quite tight. It's quite tight. 
That's what I always say to people, but it's it's reassuring to hear it from you because it is tight. Okay. (laughs) Sometimes they're like, really? And I'm like 30 to 60 maybe, but I wouldn't go over an hour. But actually, yeah, 30 is tight. Okay, that's interesting. But then what if someone, like say they're a learning morning riser and they go for a gym workout. Okay, so like me, for example, I go at 5 a.m. This is the bit where I struggle is then you go out for dinner with friends and they are staying out late. So now you're going to bed at midnight. And now that's five hours so are you still better off getting up at the same time and napping later or like exactly such a short sleep oh such a short sleep so really important question and this is this is really where kind of the rubber meets the road of oh nice idea but then when you put it into practice like what you just said that's where people often things start kind of unraveling um so really good call out so what we want to do is one design a lifestyle where uh hopefully as much as possible, we can capture some of your, um, you know, things that are important to you, whatever your lifestyle might include that we can kind of help support some of that workability with being in alignment with the rhythms of nature as well. So how can we kind of reconcile that and make it as consistent as possible? So I say that because, um, sometimes I'll have people that, you know, are coming in huge night owls and they've been going to bed at 2 AM. Um, and so for us, as we work in a kind of, a, a process of starting to get more consistency and regularity, for them, we might begin with moving things back to midnight for across the board. And that helps encapsulate their lifestyle and some of the things that they're doing. And then eventually we might be moving it back more consistently, but say, if, you know, they have more evening, um, you know, work schedule or certain things that we might have to incorporate. The biggest thing is consistency across the board for these things. Now, optimal 100% is to align with the rhythms of nature uh, and to make the, not just for a woo perspective or a nice to have, but we know that uh, the World Health Organization lists shift working as a possible Mm. cancer causing agent. So there's a very real fallout when we start deviating from those rhythms. We are designed by, you know, over thousands of years to be linked up with those rhythms. So I say all that because what we want to do is uh, start to ensure that we are kind of marrying ourselves to those rhythms as consistently as possible and then choosing a wake-up time that supports that cause, right? Now, to answer your question, um, so hopefully we've, if we've decided that 5 a.m. really is encapsulates um, for that person that wake-up time where most of the time they can adhere to that, Then every so often, if something does come up and you are out later, the suggestion is this. You mentioned Matthew Walker, and he also echoes this kind of uh, thought process where it's almost the do nothing effect uh, or the do nothing method. And so what the do nothing method really looks like is that you are continuing to wake up at around your same wake up time. Now, you might swing that out, say that 30 minutes, maybe if it's a wild, wild night and you really are running on very little, maybe you would move it out say like 45 minutes or so uh, to account for that kind of change. But largely you're keeping things anchored at that consistent wake up time. And while that might seem like cruel and unusual punishment on the front half, uh, <clears throat> on the long term, so it's setting you up powerfully to get right back on track in your mm-hmm. evening to get you back to your consistent bedtime. Because let's think about the opposite. If we then say, oh my God, it was a wild night. So I'm going to sleep in until 
whatever, 738. Uh, now I'm running around, you know, three hours later. So it's like, I just hopped on a flight from, uh, I was kind of, uh, American centric, I guess, in this example, but New York to LA. Uh, and so three hour time difference. Now you're having to deal with that jet lag problem. And there's also something known as metabolic jet lag. So now you might be getting hungry later too. So now you're throwing all of your signals off. So maybe you're eating later now. And many people can relate to this too. Too, right. That's how many of us manage our weekends. And so we'll sleep in and then ugh, I'm not hungry for my breakfast in my normal time. So I'm going to do a later brunch. Uh, then of course the dinner gets moved out or snacking. So those are other signals that are counter to what we're looking to create. Now we might see people having more um, caffeine to account for that rough night. They might be taking long naps to account for that rough night, um, or they do this other thing where they'll say, oh, I'm so tired, I'm going to go to bed early. Uh, and then that can also be problematic because that's where some dysfunctional um, sleep patterns can come in because now they find that I'm so tired, but why am I just laying here? Uh, and then that can start to breed these problematic relationships with the bedroom and their sleep and, how, and the results. So instead, we do the do nothing effect. Now you can, uh, like any time, still leverage things like naps um, and in a strategic way, still very uh, short and on the early half of your night. There are always asterisks to everything. One of the times we might suggest where you avoid naps is if you are dealing with really chronic and um, insomnia and you've got some big, if you've got some uh, problems in your relationship to your sleep pressure and the ability to know that you are both tired and able to fulfill on actually falling asleep with ease. So that might be a time when you want to avoid naps. But for many people, if you're not dealing with that, just leveraging naps, um, in a mindful way. So putting them on the earlier side and kind of more in the power nap domain and say like 25 minutes or so. Um, sometimes if you are going longer, we'd always suggest that you never go over a sleep cycle, which is around, you know, say the 90 minute mark or so, but I would say that's very, very rare. And most of the time you're looking to keep things earlier. And this is very different with shift workers. They've got a whole other way of managing things. Um, so, the suggestion, Angela, to, to that question then is that you still maintain around your same wake up time. And we might all think we might have examples of this, of like the friend that no matter what time we go out, they always wake up at around the same time. That's actually yeah. what we're looking to do. We're trying to train to be like that friend. Maybe that person is you if you're listening. If that is you, uh, I know sometimes it can feel like a frustrating thing. It's actually tends to be a really good sign because that means that we're in trained to have very workable and uh, measured clocks. And when we think about all this, it's not just like we're trying to set up all these, you know, ridiculous rules for ourselves. It's actually for a reason that we know that there are trillions of clocks in every cell and organ in our body and all being really kept on time by our master clock in our brain, the superchiasmatic nucleus. I know you do different, um, you know, educate people on this topic. And it's so, so crucial um, because that piece is linked up directly to our eyes. And so that's one of the reasons why there's some very clear uh, indicators that help us keep all of those clocks on time. And it does always begin with the light dark cycle. That is the most powerful one. Mm -hmm. um, and this is known as a zeitgeber or time giver that tells the body what time it is and what to be doing when. So think of your body like that it's and your your eyes um, as if it's sampling the environment all throughout the course of the day. And in this sampling process, 
you are looking to help facilitate telling it what time it is and what to be doing when. Now, it's not just applying to the light. That's just a really impactful one. But it also implies to the meal timing piece, the, when you're exercising, the temperature in your environment, the temperature that you're creating in your bodily environment. Um, you know, there's so many things that can tell us what time it is and what to be doing when. And so that is where the power comes in that when you learn what those things are, then you can leverage them accordingly. What about then um, when you talk about the circadian alignment, the thing I struggle with every single year is this time of year in the UK, our winters are so different than our summers, right? So now yes. we're working up towards like the longest day of the year, I think is 21st of June. It's super, super light. So when we're having dinner, everyone feels really wide awake. The sun is still streaming in through the windows. You go out for a walk. It's still really light, right? Until half yeah. nine, 10 o'clock at night. So for someone like me, who I will always wake up and I find it frustrating. And now I realize that you're, I know it, but when someone else says it to you, it validates it even more, yeah, right? Because totally. I'm like, I know I should get up because I'm awake, but when you're tired and you've been out, it feels hard because I will naturally wake up at five and I find that really difficult to resist. So it actually has the opposite effect where it makes me think, I don't really want to go out and go for dinner because I know that. There's a bunch of people, for example, that are night owls and they're going to go on really late and I'm going to feel like the party pooper because now I'm looking at the clock going, I'm not going to get enough sleep because I can't sleep in even if I want to. I just, yeah. my body clock wakes me up. So that's kind of its own problem, which we can talk about. But also what about the fact that it's so light? I feel like what is normally seven to seven and a half hours in the winter can easily become six to six and a half hours in summer because of this change what circadian alignment should we be following? Should we be thinking of the equatorial sun uh, cycle or? Good question. A hundred percent. Yes. This is where it gets really layered. Um, cause you know, people love to have just like really bite-sized recommendations and say, Oh, well you do this always across the entire year. And to your point, um, our bodies are not designed like that. There are a, a seasonal nature, but also where we fall geographically on the globe really, really matters. Um, and this kind of goes into the domain of health geography, which I think is a really fascinating concept of where you choose to reside uh, can yield effects on our health and well-being. Um, so we can look at things like, for instance, um, a very clear one is with MS uh, and MS rates being higher in northern latitude locations versus southern um, or closer to the equator locations uh, with speculations onto the why for that. But the theory is that when we start moving away from the equator, um, that we're getting less uh, kind of connection to vitamin D, so uh, less powerful sunlight at different points throughout the course of the year. This is impacting our uh, overall health, but particularly those mitochondrial-based diseases. Uh, and so that this seems to be a very real thing for us to think about is what are we dealing with health-wise and is our environment pulling for great health all throughout the course of the year? Um, so, I mean, I will say that, and not everyone necessarily uh, needs to do this or has this available, but I personally did even move based on that exact concern. I was living in Manhattan and most of the winters um, would just be, you know, look a particular way and you'd have less access to sun. And then you would have that really dramatic shift to your point in the summers where it's bright for so long 
Um, so I moved to Austin to have higher, uh, kind of rates throughout the course of the year of sunlight exposure, um, and the ability to kind of live this indoor outdoor lifestyle. So just, you know, be bringing in the context that there is that factor that when you are clear on what are your struggles with your, your environment. Now, of course, there's lots of things you can do to offset these concerns, but uh, knowing, am I going to continue to choose to live in this environment or would it make sense to uh, move to another environment if that's available to me? Uh, granted, I get that that's not always available. So what do we do if that's not available? Uh, then we get really curious about these uh, daily changes in the environment that we are choosing to live in um, so that circadian uh 24-hour rhythm that each person has. We're diurnal creatures, which means we're meant to be active by day and at rest at night. So when we do find what we're seeing is that some many people are phase delayed and pushed out. So they're not getting sleepy until later. Um, and what we're seeing in many studies, especially more recently, is that while there might be this kind of genetic drift, it's uh, referred to as a drifting of some people being a bit more late leaning and some people being early leaning, there's more evidence that's starting to come out that some of us, um, based on the way that our societal function is set up or, or society is set up in modernity, that we're skewing later. And some of us might even be more sensitive to some of these changes. Um, and that is part of the reason why we're seeing more and more people that are, uh, that late leaning the night owls that you're speaking to. Uh, so part of just even the behavioral piece is how can we design a life where we're facilitating things that really work for our environment, um, and our goals and prioritizing sleep, um, and health as much as possible. So, you know, a lot of people I work with will start to start hosting certain things. So they'll have things that they're, you know, kind of known for their weekly brunches, monthly brunches, um, or they'll have kind of happy hour type, you know, lineups of things that are just moving things earlier to help have it all. So, cause we certainly don't want to cut mm. out social connection, social. uh, Super important. One of the other things that I pull in as a recommendation, we had a great um, anthropologist on the podcast that pointed to how we're social creatures and we know that loneliness and poor sleep are connected. Um, so those seem really, really important. So we want to feel like we're part of some sort of tribe that's important to us. So um, how do we do that and still prioritize our sleep? So this um, anthropologist, he had actually studied the Hudson tribe uh, and would find, you know, kind of how sleep had been managed in hunter-gatherer tribes and how can we leverage that information now? So what he came up with is what he calls, um, this is uh, David Sampson, he calls it your sleep capital and your social capital. So that most of the time you're managing your sleep capital, say, you know, 80, 90% of the time, almost a Pareto's principle. And you're pretty good at that. It's pretty dialed in. You're making, you know, deposits into your sleep capital. But every so often you're prioritizing your social capital. And you might know that that's going to take out, you know, some reserves of your sleep capital. But we we know that that's important for us to invest in every so often. So that might be the time where it's the wedding of the close friend and you're going to be staying up much later. or friends are going to be coming over and staying with you. So your sleep is going to be a little bit uh, funky during that period. But we can think of it as an important investment in our social capital. 
Um, because this is the time of the year where in historically in seasons, to your point, that we might have debated, we might have had, you know, a summer solstice celebration and we would have stayed up later, uh, celebrated and had less sleep during that particular time. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of just something that we would invest in because we're feeling closer connection with the people that are important to us. And the long term, we can make an argument that that's important for our overall sleep. So there's some ways to think about that disruption. Um, but then I would also say this is where it's important for us to design an environment for us that pulls for great sleep so that you can kind of keep things on track that work for you, even when some of the environmental shifts are happening. And sadly, some man-made shifts for like, you know, daylight savings time and things that have us skewing our kind of dark light cycle in a way that's man-made and wouldn't naturally be happening to such egregious points. Um, so that's where you want to have control of say, your bedroom environment and making it totally pitch black. We're looking to have it that you don't, you can kind of pass the hand test. You put your hand up in front of your face in your bedroom. And if you could still see your hand, kind of keep moving on, uh, you know, blacking out whatever you need to do. So that's totally black that your environment leading up to that is uh, really customizable, that you're able to get that really nice and dark um, using just candles or red light largely and how that can For how long for? Things. Would this be for about an hour, an hour and a half before? How long would we use that? Yes, very good point. So ideally, so certainly throughout most of the year, we're trying to still keep this aligned with those rhythms. So post-sunset, but to your point, there's certain times throughout the year where things really debate. And I also work with clients saying like Sweden, or um, high ports of Alaska where there's times where all day it's bright or all day it's dark. So what do we do then? Uh, so then you're still looking to keep um, an extended period of time. So I often suggest for people that that would be kind of bare minimum that we're at least getting a couple hours before bed where it's, you know, really, really turned down. Um, but for most of us, I really like to see even a little bit more. So, you know, three hours or so um, where we're having really, really dim lighting um, and we're looking to have low lux output. You can even test this uh, with different apps. So lux or light meter and just ensure that you're in a really, really low lux environment. Um, and largely that does come from candles or red lights in your, in your space using things like blue blockers. If you do have anything that brings in any of that blue light, um, and looking to block out any of that blue light, ideally. And this includes just going through your space, any of those leftover little light bulbs or little night lights, or just um, those kind of pervasive things that we've started to, you know, not even think about as being problematic can really be disruptive to our melatonin production in many studies. Um, so looking to have sufficient time where we're think of it as bathing in darkness for, uh, you know, some of these key hours before bed. Why? Because while we're in darkness, if, you know, melatonin is referred to as that um, vampire hormone or hormone of darkness. Now it's much more complicated than that, but it is facilitated by darkness. And so in order to have a sufficient rise up of melatonin, we want to be sitting in darkness for an extended period of time leading up to bedtime. Interesting. Do you know what? I think I'm going to give you some just so people can practically put this in, right? So maybe we can put this into some context. How are we going to change this? Because it's what I took away from that is for someone like me, who's an early morning type, right? I've done the questionnaires. It says early morning. I've done a DNA test. It says early morning. Yeah. I know not everyone does this, but everyone can go online and look at questionnaires. There's plenty of them. 
if you track with an aura ring, it tells you your chronotype. It tells me early morning, right? So aura keeps nudging me to go to bed. Whoop has a thing where it wants me to sleep, I don't know, for like nine, 10 hours a night yes. all the time, which oh, yeah. is kind of annoying. Aura yes. never does that to me. I don't know how real that is, but I find that extremely frustrating. Can we touch on I how real that, that is? And then I'll, I'll come back to my question maybe, because actually that's a, a point people, many people do use Whoop and I love it for so many reasons, yeah, but I find totally. that annoying that I can never, ever seem to get there to their sleep need. Yeah, no, I think that um, I personally find that a little concerning and I think can kind of create some disordered sleeping at times where people are just pulling for purely that sleep duration. It's kind of, it's perfect because yeah. we kind of started the conversation like uh, with that. And, but then we also got into how nuanced this can be. And so um, it's not just about that sleep duration. It's uh, how much fragmentation, it's the um, regularity of when you're going to bed, when you're waking up, um, all of those things. So if just looking at that one metric, I think that can be really problematic and also make people feel like a failure and because it can land itself to performance anxiety in a very real way. Um, that was part of my story with my sleep was kind of sleep anxiety. And I started to relate to myself as, oh, did something like break in me along the way? Is there something wrong with my sleep? Is this how it's always going to be? And at, I would set myself up with such kind of stress and panic over my sleep. And so that would be the self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and thinking that I was doing such harm to my health and well-being, uh, it's real fine line to both prioritizing sleep, knowing that it's important, but also knowing that all of us are going to have a rough night periodically uh, and knowing that that's totally normal um, and that we are resilient. It's simply when we're um, over time chronically, you know, doing things that maybe unbeknownst to us or knowingly um, are impacting our sleep results. So instead, what I hope people can be left with is that um, we're shifting our focus, you know, so using myself as an example, when I was really struggling with my sleep, I focused so much on the nights and it would be like this battle. Okay. I've got to be prepared and I have, you know, the earplugs and the eye mask and the books and the whatever. And I'm like, okay, I'm going into battle basically is how I was relating to it. Like, Oh, this better work out. Okay. And, and then of course, and then you're never going to sleep basically you're never going to sleep like that. Please. Uh, yeah. so instead, we're looking at uh, someone on the podcast. I don't remember who it was, but somebody used the analysis of surfing, which I really liked. And they would say that great surfers would do all of this work to kind of set up um, the conditions for great surfing. So they would, you know, check out the weather, they would see the location where it'd be for great surfing, then they would go and drive and they would have the, you know, this, the gear on and the right board and blah, blah, blah. But then they would go out into the water, and then they would just kind of hang out. They're just like, you know, trust that a wave would come. Um, and that's kind of how we want to think about sleep. So we want to shift our attention to the day, all the things that we have in our control. Um, and it does really begin from the moment you wake up as part of the things that can impact your sleep results. It's why if, if you got nothing else out of what I'm saying, please begin with having a consistent wake up time. Cause you do have a say about that. You might not have a say as much about when you fall asleep and the wake ups for a while anyway, but you do always have a say about the wake up time. So begin there and then pair that with bright light exposure physically outside. So those are two anchoring pieces. So sunlight anchoring. Um, so you want to do that within about 30 minutes of wake up. Now I know sometimes if you're getting up egregiously early and it's not, the sun hasn't ri uh, risen at that point, 
Um, some of the recommendations would be to still have yourself aligned with these rhythms. So still having kind of red light exposure, um, until the natural sunrise time. Now there is a conflict in that. So some people will, um, point to having, you know, kind of sad lamps or bright light exposure. Yeah. I've um, heard Huberman talk about the fact that the ring light that you use, that it's not red light and you need, if you, if you can't get outside, so like in the UK, to use your example, we're yes. doing the school run in the dark. So there's no totally. chance. Yeah. So, so yeah. he's like a ring light is bright enough, but are you saying actually you could keep them dim until like, I'm just curious, how do you wake there's, up and get that circadian entrainment? Now there's two real um, camps on this uh, piece. Now I will say, and it's actively kind of um, uh, a discussion point. Now I'll say from a lot of um, academia, the callouts are to leverage the sad lamps or um, kind of bright light exposure in your space shortly thereafter waking. And that kind of uh, brings about that excitatory response. Um, so if you're going to do that, then I would also suggest as much as you can offset that with uh, red light exposure, because never in nature would we be exposed to that amount of bright light uh, and blue hues of light mm. in such a kind of um, alien fashion. Like we just would never have had that happen. So please at least uh, aim to kind of offset that with red light exposure when you do that. Now, um, so more of the purists or the biohackers will say, okay, well, that's not in nature. So instead you'd want to have red light exposure throughout that whole part of the morning until the natural sunrise occurs. You're getting that real sunlight in your eyes. You're physically getting outside for that. Um, and then you're really trying to align yourself with these rhythms. There's lots of variants on this. And also mm. I want to call it, you know, I shared that I work with poker players and oftentimes they're akin to shift workers and shift workers. We really often have to, um, aug or we have to create a faux light exposure timing for themselves. That's really not supernatural. Um, so what that would look like is we're having to set up the bright light exposure with the light boxes and the red light. And we're timing out when that would be for them and then having to really decide when their sunset would be. So we're all kind of making that up for them to align with their own circadian rhythm. So this is where it does get layered. There's um, you have to really get one interested in learning about um this piece of circadian rhythm and treatment, the physics of light and how it light is very different, uh, depending on where you are on the globe. Um, also your light needs based on your skin tone, the Fitzpatrick scale that you fall on. So for a vitamin D component, that's a big piece of getting great sleep. Vitamin D bring that precursor to serotonin, which is a precursor to melatonin. So if you're not getting that um, at the right times, that can be disruptive. Also, either as I'm talking to you right now with these windows behind me, um, this is kind of problematic for a signaling pathway because this is um, breaking up some of the light and it's making it more blue light rich. Uh, and so that is another reason why all of us want to physically aim to be getting outside as much as humanly possible throughout the course of the day to get actual um, natural bright light exposure as much as we possibly can. Um, so this is where we want to get curious and then find out what works for us, uh, to keep ourselves on our type of schedule that we've created. Should we do, uh, does before, well, I was going to ask you to do a really quick walkthrough, which I'd like to do just for five minutes. Cause I think it'll help people practice it and then they can go and find more about you and, and, and how they can engage with your courses and material before we do that. Is there, 
shift work sounds complex. I've worked with shift workers. It is, isn't it? They yes. sometimes they're doing nights. I know a lot of people that listen to this show are actually um, medics or nurses and mm. practitioners, and they are having that disruption. What can they do if they're working nights and then they're coming home, they're arriving, it's bright sunshine, and then they might have two days off and then they're going back into that night shift. How can they kind of protect the dancer? Oh, so good. I'm so glad you're pointing to the very underserved um, group of the population. Okay, so a couple of resources. One, I would suggest uh, getting the app, the Shift uh, Shift Work app. So it's a um, it's by the creators of Time Shifter. So the Shift uh, app is basically leveraging our the same algorithms that NASA uses to keep their astronauts on time. It's using that algorithm for whatever your shifts are. And so you can populate those into the app and then it will help kind of bring a rundown of when you should be getting bright light exposure, when you should be in total darkness. If you're using things like um, caffeine or melatonin or certain things, when to dose those or when not to. Um, And so that's helping you guide in advance of your shifts and and changing of shift, which rotating shift worker, um, shift work schedule is very, very complex and um, can be really problematic if we aren't aware of what we can do to help facilitate that. So I would definitely suggest um, that that's a great new resource that we've only just recently had access to. So I highly suggest people use something like that. Um, another book that's helpful for shift work is uh, called The Sleep Fix. And this was actually um, written by an ABC correspondent that was a shift worker um, and went through a whole struggle uh, of, of sleep herself. And so then started, you know, like any great journalist, uh, kind of learning what all the things are that from kind of a research-backed perspective uh, can be leveraged to improve your um, kind of shift work uh, lifestyle. Which brings me to the word lifestyle is that ideally we're looking to create a lifestyle around this shift work um, kind of schedule as much as you humanly can. So what is really beneficial is if we do have a consistent schedule, that's one of the best and easiest ways, I would say maybe easy, but easier way to navigate shift work is that now that becomes your new lifestyle where you, um, you know, go to bed at your consistent 3 a.m. or what have you. Um, And so that becomes just how you manage, even on the off days, you don't just try to go back to how things are. You're trying to really keep that um, and embrace that and say, what, how could I kind of design a life where that is facilitated? And I respect that um, bedtime as much as anyone else would their normal bedtimes. Um, So, cause that, that consistency is so key. Cause once we start having all that variability, then hormone disruption just is a complete mess. Um, and then if certainly those, those clocks get very, very confused. Uh, so that would be one place that you can begin where it's rotating. Then you want to be even more in this conversation, uh, to try to do as much as you can to leverage that, but also really advocating, we're trying to get more education out for employers of just how disruptive that, uh, rotating shift can be. And so where possible, how we can kind of keep things regular for shift workers. Cause that's a big component. Yeah. Massive. I think Matthew Walker was talking about the fact that if we know that we have night owls and we have early morning types, why are we not doing it? Like if I'm awake early in the morning, why would you not take me and put me there early when yeah. a night owl's really going to struggle at that time and vice versa for me, I'm just, and I think that was one of the problems for me as a corporate lawyer where I then yeah. struggled with like, um, 
depression and things like that after I had my kids and bipolar episodes and all this, because basically I was completely out of circadian alignment. Corporate law is all about nothing. It doesn't matter how early I went to the office, nothing would get started before about 10 a.m. And oh. so it was ho- a hopeless thing of just thinking, I'm going to try, I'm going to try and get away on time. And then you'd be there all night into the early hours of the morning, which has gone long beyond. I'm now moving into when, you know, 3 a.m. I'm still working, but my body clock's kind of ready to wake up. And I just think it's crazy. And it has profound, as you say, health implications for people, right? Absolutely. Yes. So it's so great that you're become aware of what really seems to work for you and leveraging that and really aiming to as much as possible design a life that facilitates and uh, works into that. Um, And sometimes it really does mean making tough choices and decisions about what we're saying yes to, what we're saying no to, to facilitate, you know, overall health and well-being. I think this has been this afterthought or a nice to have for a long time, this sleep performance, but now we're starting to understand in more and more research, just how crucial this is. So if there's certain things that are happening in your life that aren't um, helping to facilitate those, uh, that, that kind of important foundational piece of well-being, then sometimes we do have to make the harder calls, which sounds like you did. So, um, before you go, let's do a really quick walkthrough for a kind of practical thing. Uh, so let me give an example and I'll say the takeaways that I've taken and people can start putting this to practice. So for me, being an early morning type, one of the things I picked up on with you uh, that was uh, getting up at the usual time and sticking to that and maybe actually changing my social engagements and being proactive about it and saying, rather than turning down invitations, saying, actually, you know, why don't we do brunch? Because that's something we can both do. If you if you wake up a bit later and you go to bed later, that's something we can still hang out together. Uh, I definitely took that away as a practical Yay. thing, uh, which is good. The other thing I noticed was um, with the yesterday, I never do this normally. I did a workout at three o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, consequently, last night, I found it really difficult to be as tired. It was way too invigorating. I'm used to doing that at 5 a.m. I skipped it and I did it at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, 3 to 4. It's quite an intense workout. And it's interesting looking at what happened because, first of all, I didn't feel tired. So I found myself shifting my bedtime. I just couldn't feel quite as sleepy. And then Aura reported my heart rate being elevated for longer at night. It took longer for my resting pulse to come down. So clearly I was out of sync, which is everything I talk about, right? Biosyncing, thinking yeah. of your biology. And I was out of sync. So I think it might be helpful then. Let's just like, if we use me as a study, Aura tells me when the midpoint of my night is. It sounds like I should be doing a lot of these things earlier with consistent eating times and moving them earlier. Would that be what you would say? Like, I'm just curious, what would you say? Like, how would I practically implement this? Totally. Yeah. Great question. Um, so a couple of things for people to be aware of is I think I loosely mentioned this concept of uh, zeitgeibers or time givers and how time givers uh, tell our body what time it is and what to be doing when and how we can help leverage those to kind of improve the ease to your point by which we're falling asleep and staying asleep and the quality. Um, so the first most important one being the light dark cycles. And so leveraging those, setting up our environment to pull for those, uh, and that we have that level of consistency and respect for that. We're not, um, deviating with man-made, uh, kind of interruptions of artificial lights at night, et cetera. Um, and so when we 
with all of this, we're looking at very clear day mode and night mode. And so again, I mentioned we're a diurnal creature, so we're meant to be active by day and at rest at night. So you want a high amplitude of bright light exposure by day. So bright days, dark nights is what we're looking to create. So during that bright day part, that high amplitude piece, uh, what can we put in there? We want wake promoting activities during that time. So that would be meal timing is a wake promoting activity. So it does take energy effort. Um, and presumably if we're eating, it's to, ex to take that energy from the food that we're eating and expend it somewhere. And that's a big problem I see for a lot of people is that they're eating some of the bulk of their calories late into the evening when you're doing nothing. And we're about to just like lay and, and go to sleep, um, which is a big, big problem. Cause that really disrupts, um, a kind of our clocks and our quality of sleep. So you start to take inventory of your light, dark cycle. one of the next most important things is your temperature, um, um, and what not only just ambient temperature, but then what are the things that you're doing that could be disrupting your bodily temperature? at the wrong times. Uh, so then that could be that meal timing. It could definitely be the exercise timing like you spoke to. Uh, so we're looking to keep these things on the first half of the day, ideally, so that they're circadian aligned. And then in the evening hours, when we're looking to kind of uh, rest and digest, downregulate, what would facilitate that? So then it would be things like uh, giving our digestive system a bit of a break so we can lower our heart rate, lower our body temperature, uptick our HRV, and help to facilitate melatonin production. We just had um, Dr. Sachin Panda on the podcast, highly recommend checking him out. Uh, and one of the things he pointed to was this kind of um, seesaw effect when you're eating and you're looking to produce melatonin at night, then we want to have the pancreas kind of asleep, if you will. Uh, and then if we do the, the opposite, which a lot of us do, is that we're eating just kind of casually throughout the course of the night that can turn on the pancreas at the wrong times and then disrupt melatonin production is one of his callouts and their findings. So we want to facilitate that so that we can get sufficient melatonin production so that you can both fall asleep with these, but also stay asleep with these. So you have uh, plenty of kind of melatonin reserve to get you throughout the course of the night. Um, and so that meal timing piece is going to be a big component of that exercise, huge one, because of course, what does that do to body temperature it tends to raise our body temperature. Um, now this is, this one gets a little layered because we do find that people can, um, be aware of where their kind of cortisol levels are. So if you are dealing with really high cortisol, um, then maybe for, for that individual, then it might make sense for having a bit of a gentle movement uh, in the first half of the day. Uh, and then, but still keeping their main bulk of their exercise on the front half of the day, they might just kind of dose it accordingly. Um, so just being aware that there could be some bio-individuality, but largely, if you think back to hunter-gatherer days, what's likely? We would have woken up with the sun, and then you'd only had a few hours of sunlight. And so that's likely when you would have gotten most of your movement mm. throughout the course of the day. And then the sun would set and it's kind of was like party over the first real biohack being fire really in a lot of ways, because that, you know, kind of uh, artificially extended our days. And that was one, of, but you know, you'd only get that for an extended period, a short period of time for most, um, of history. And so now this is where we've thrown ourselves way out of whack by this ability to have 24 hour scheduling, including 24 hour blue lit gyms and 8 PM workouts and all of that. We have to just kind of, uh, you know, skew back to the blueprint of nature and does that align? 
Yeah. Do you think that um, your body's intelligent enough that, for example, I mean, I think it is, but I'm just curious you, what you think, that if you work out at a certain time every day, right, and you're eating at certain times, right, it knows the regularity. So now you throw in a workout and it was quite an intense workout I did. It's like, hello, like this is what we normally do in the morning and yeah. that gets me going for the day. And now you're doing this at three o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, let's like ramp up the energy. And that's what it certainly felt like because I had all this energy. Totally. Yeah. It's a big deal because, um, just do know that sleep loves consistency and that doesn't even just apply. You know, I I was leading with the, the wake up, um, emphasis, but that also applies to all of these things so that it likes the consistency of certainly the meal timing piece, because then it can prepare for, uh, digestion, which is a taxing process on the body so that the digestive process can really truly prepare. And that's why we tend to get hungry at specific periods of time. If you're listening and you're saying, oh, well, that's not for me. I'm always hungry at night. Um, not possible. Just know that we can actually have a say on what time the body is getting hungry. Uh, so we can kind of move those meal timing, um, elements often a bit earlier for most people is what we see being beneficial. Um, but you can move your meal timing and then that will impact when you get those hunger pangs because the body is trying to keep you on time. So that's, what's really fascinating. So that digestive clocks are very real. Um, and you know, it's only, and this is still kind of a new thing for us to be thinking about. It's just in 2017 that the Nobel prize was given for, uh, this kind of more rich understanding of circadian rhythms and the functionality of circadian rhythms. So, you know, we're going to see more and more information coming out about this topic. Uh, So I think it's just a matter of time where it starts getting more into the mainstream of then how to practically apply it. Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been, I think you've given us so many practical tips. I think it's probably the most practical focused episode we've recorded on sleep. Uh, oh, just that makes me so happy. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> and loads just, of tips there. I so appreciate that because it truly is my mission on this planet to share as much uh, kind of practical takeaways for people in the area of their sleep. So if anything was unclear, please don't hesitate to reach out. It really is my favorite topic on the whole planet. Uh, so I'm always happy to kind of clear up any of the confusion or hopefully just even inspire um, curiosity around this thing that we do a third of our lives on average 26 years that sadly, at least in America, the average doctor is getting around two hours of training in. Um, so, wow. you know, that's, that's in general you know, practice and certainly not outside of specialty. Um, but, you know, so it's really an important area that I think has been overlooked for a long time. So even just the interest in this area is a big deal. Amazing. Thank you so much. Where can people come and find with you, find you, connect with you, Molly, please share. Yeah, absolutely. So at sleepisaskill.com, there's lots of steps that you can take. Um, so one, again, if anything was unclear, we have a little you know bot on there so you can ask any kind of questions um, so we can help facilitate just getting you some answers there. Uh, and then we have a sleep assessment you can take and then it will kind of auto trigger some things that you can do right away to help support, support your sleep. Um, you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. We call it Sleep Obsessions, aim to have the most obsessive sleep planet, uh, sleep newsletter on the planet is the goal. Uh, so we've been doing that every Monday for almost five years. So we've, it's, we haven't missed a Monday, so please join in and we respond to every single email. So if you have anything that you're experimenting with your sleep, like to put in kind of reader, um, information too. So if you have like screenshots of your stats or what have you, we can include those. Um, 
And then we have our weekly podcast with sleep experts to help facilitate getting in this conversation. And then if you're really struggling, we have online courses um, and one-on-one opportunities to help uh, gamify is really part of our goal. So we do, every person we work with uh, does wear an aura ring as of uh, 2023. So with that, then we can really measure how you're coming in uh, and then all that we can do to transform your uh, numerically. So really both objectively and subjectively your sleep experience. Amazing. Thank you so much. We will link to all of that in the show notes. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Your pleasure as always and excited for more kind of um, partnerships to come. It's what you're doing is so complimentary to what we do with sleep as a skill. So I really appreciate the work that you are doing. Thank you, Molly. Yeah, I'm excited. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit femalebiohacker.com and be part of a special community of women looking to optimize their mind, body, and spirit. If you're tired of sifting through countless websites and books to find the answers to your questions about nutrition, fitness, hormones, mindset, spirituality, and biohacking, the search is over. I've done the research for you and every week we go live with in-depth masterclasses, Q&A calls and monthly challenges to help you transform your life. And when you join the collective, you'll have access to a wealth of information, including deep dive masterclasses and biohacking toolkits on our members' favorites like metabolic flexibility, gut health, stress and resiliency, and stepping into your most empowered self. Get access and be coached by me and my team and level up your health, career and life all for less than a dollar a day. Go to femalebiohacker.com or click the link below to get started and I'll see you on the inside.